VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? Startups are the worst thing to do for money. Because the probability of it succeeding is so low. <laughs> so it's funny, you get all these people, the, the number one reason they do it is, oh, it's a great way. And look, there's so many easier ways to make money than doing a startup. So you better really enjoy it because that might be all you're going to get from the startup. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. How's everyone doing? I'm your host, Danny Fortson, the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times. And this week, people, we're talking about charging, car charging, specifically why the current model, you know, superchargers, wall chargers, etc., not going to work. So a little story, which is not at all unique, but um, I think kind of helps illustrate the point. So recently we swapped out. Our 2006 Toyota Prius, I sold it for a very crazy price, uh, just because given gas prices, suddenly everybody wants one, even if they're old, with fading paint, stained upholstery, very loved, let's say. I sent her off to another owner, and I'm sure that car will have many, many years left in it. Anyhow, our new car is a Tesla. It's a cool car, I'm not going to lie. But the whole charging experience has been really interesting. So we got the charger installed at the house, so you plug it in overnight, and presto, full charge, you're good, etc. However, we took it on our first road trip recently, and you know, the charging thing, it's not like popping into a gas station, you go fill up for five minutes and you're you're on your way. Charging is a thing. The car tells you where the supercharges are on the route, you pull over, you plug in the car, and then you go kick it somewhere. In our case, we went to a Starbucks nearby where our kids devoured copious amounts of banana bread and we just hung out, waited for half an hour until it was charged. And that half hour is not a full charge. So we drove to my brother's place in Santa Barbara, which is about 270 miles driving from where we live in Oakland. And by that time we got down there, we had to do another 25 minute charge while we were there because we were driving around a little bit on the weekend. And then we had to do another charge on the way home. So keep in mind, this is again, 270 miles. Now, if we were in our trusty Honda, kind of, you know, the bigger car we use when we're doing these type of trips, usually it would have been like 10 minutes tops filling up time for the whole trip. This was at least, it was like a good 90 minutes. Now it was cheaper, and it was electric, that's cool. But it was definitely, you know, a thing, uh, a very different thing. It's a kind of a pain point in the whole kind of EV experience. And I think it's, it's one of the reasons why widespread adoption is kind of one of the, the big obstacles. And I bring this up because this week's guest 
has a completely different approach. His name is John D'Souza, and he's the co-founder and CEO of a company called Ample. And it's a startup that, rather than doing charging, just swaps out your battery. It gives you, takes out your spent battery and gives you a brand new one. You can do that like once a week, once every two weeks, however long, however big your battery is and however much you drive. Uh, maybe every other day, who knows? So it's created a business around this idea. You drive into one of their facilities. It just kind of looks like a kind of space age garage. You drive in there and then it kind of extracts the battery from underneath the car, inserts a new one, fully charged. Boom, you're in and out 10 minutes. Bye-bye. Now, obviously getting the big car makers to buy in to this kind of giant change in how they're making their cars is a big deal so that's a big that's a big ask because you know the battery is the most expensive part of the car it's you know runs along the base of most models and making it extractable and replaceable will be you know that's their challenge um they've figured out the tech they now need to get the world to agree that this is what we should be doing but what's interesting is that they're already doing this apparently at large scale in China, which is much further along in their use of uh, of EVs. And there's a ton of advantages he goes through as well. Anyhow, it's an interesting idea. And John is not somebody to bet against, I guess you would say, because he started and sold three companies before this one. He's raised a quarter of a billion dollars for this idea. And he's already signed up a bunch of big partners, big car companies to kind of bring this vision to life. So it's kind of one of these things that's, you know, I'd never heard of this company, came across them, and I was like, oh, whoa, they've raised this amount of money, and this guy has done all of these companies before, and they're having success. It's just kind of interesting. So brought John on. He's a super interesting guy. He was born in Ethiopia, grew up in Abu Dhabi, went to uni in America at age 16. So he's just this really unique background, I think, as well, that also really informs what he's done with his life and how he has dealt with, you know, some pretty big challenges that he keeps putting in front of himself. So we talk about that. We talk about the present and future of electric cars, his grand plan to kind of help accelerate this whole shift and, you know, his personal story, which again is just very compelling and interesting. And then lastly, for the entrepreneurs out there, he has really great insights from his day as an investor. He was on the investing side for a while as well. And, uh, you know, he, he shares some of the insights he learned about, you know, why investors say no to a company and why their reasons are almost always total lies. It's true. Anyhow, we cover all of that and more, and we're going to get to it right now. So here is my conversation with John D'Souza, founder of Ample. Enjoy. Well, thank you for being on the show. And I must say, given that you are calling from Madrid, I'm totally jealous. I mean, we have about the same weather right now, but um, as discussed before we started uh, before we started recording, it's one of the great cities in Europe, I think. It is an incredible city. I've lived in a few different cities. What I like about it is one of the few cities where you get to know the locals. And yeah. My first experience here is I was actually watching a, uh, my son's soccer game, and two families came over to me and said, you can't be in Madrid and watch a game on your own. And they invited me to dinner. So I got wow. to know these two families and I'm still very good friends with them. But wow. it's, it's a very, it's a rare city where people, they just bring you into the community. And if you ever need something, my son broke his arm, I needed help uh, late at night and people came to the hospital, it was past uh, midnight. Uh, they were there with us. So it's, it's wow. a really wonderful, the, the food is good, the great, the weather is wonderful, but the people are incredible. Amazing. 
Amazing. So we've covered a lot of EV stuff in the electric vehicle world. And I saw what you guys were up to, which is really interesting. And it reminded me, and you can tell me whether this is wrong, of was it BYD, but you know, Build Your Dream or whatever, the the big Chinese company that has been talking about doing something similar for years and years where you basically replace the battery as opposed to charge it. And I know there's been a lot of this concept is going around for has been around for a long time. But if you could just describe kind of ample what it is you guys are doing, how long have you been at it? And if actually, you know, what the kind of what traction you're getting there, because, you know, um, having just purchased an electric vehicle, which is super cool, never going to go back to petrol powered cars. And the charging thing, it's totally fine most of the time. It can be kind of a pain. It, you know, you have to kind of plan around it. But it smiles better than, of course, it was back in the day. But it does feel like it's still, that is still to be kind of, there's still room to kind of improve that experience. Because, of course, everybody just compares it to, I can go to the gas station and in five minutes, I'm, I'm good to go. You know, um, so there's still a ways to go. You know, the, the interesting thing is that the competition for electric is gas and it works really well. Yeah. And the problem is that's, that's the standard. It's a golden standard. People will wait. I don't need to think about gas. I, I, and I keep on saying that people don't have range anxiety. They have charging anxiety. Because what happens when you <laughs> run out? Because when you run out of gas, you're not worried. You know, you, you just stop at a gas station and you move on. But it's the trauma you can have when it runs out. That, and you just need it once, totally. <laughs> and that's going to stay for a long time. So it's it's not good enough. And you, I think you hit the keywords. It works well most of the time, not all yeah. the time. And yeah. you need something, uh, especially if you you need your vehicle for your livelihood or to get things done. You need it to work all the time. It can't work ninety percent of the time <laughs> because that's not good enough. So when we thought it was, it was eight years ago, when my partner Hal uh, Hasun uh, and I. We sat there and we were sitting there uh, trying to look at the full transition to uh, electric. And we kept on coming back that the full charging thing just didn't make sense. It just was too broken. And we we said, fast forward, are people working on things that is going to solve this problem five, 10 years from now? And we didn't see it. When we spoke to people at the time, they said, look, in in two years, we'll have uh, salt state batteries. You'll be able to charge them in two to five minutes and it'll work great. It just never sounded like that was going to happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even if you could have a battery in charge in two minutes, you need a one megawatt charger. You're not going to put them everywhere. Just too many issues. So then we went back and said, the reason gas works so well is that you stop, you physically move the gas into your car and you drive away. You're not trying to you know, create gas and do everything at the station. <laughs> right, right, right. And so we said, that's a great model. What if you just took your car there and physically move the batteries into it and drive away? It, it mimics gas. So in the way what we're doing is we're providing a gas station for electric cars where you drive in, you, you swap out your batteries and you go on. And you now people have done this in the past and there's actually an interesting video on YouTube where there was an electric uh, taxi fleet in Spain in the 40s mm. where they had battery swapping. They, in the they 40s? In the 40s, a hand cream. Now you go, well, what happened to it? Well, gas was very efficient. <laughs> Uh, and more importantly, what the beauty about gas is it can work in any car. So when yeah. you looked at previous attempts at swapping, there were a couple of things that made it not work that well. The first one is that it didn't work with any car. It was very specific to a maker, and that doesn't work. Uh, the beauty of gas is it doesn't matter. It's yeah. agnostic. Anybody yeah. comes in, you can So we wanted to create a, a method to do battery swapping 
that worked across different vehicles without asking the car manufacturer to change the car in any way. And that's that's what we do. So we do a type of swapping called modular battery swapping. It gives you a full charge in a few minutes and it works across different brands. So say I have a Tesla and I find one of your ample swapping stations. You're going to remove my Tesla battery out of my car and put a different battery in. So the way we work, we do it at the point at which you receive it. So when you when you go to buy your car, you would choose, do I want a swappable battery or do I want a fixed battery? You know, if you really, if the battery is something that you want it, you know, and for Tesla, assume your battery costs 30,000. So if you felt, look, I want to pay her $30,000. I want to own this battery and keep it, it's yours. If you go with our model, you'd buy the car without the battery. So you buy the car less than a Tesla case, $30,000, but you buy it without that. And then you'd go in and, and you'd just do a, a small battery subscription to use the batteries. It also allows you the, the ability to, to choose how much battery you put in the car. You don't, a Tesla battery probably weighs a thousand pounds. So you use a, probably a 30% of the energy just moving that battery around. Yeah. And most of the time you don't need it. So if you could do a variable size battery, you could choose the right amount of battery so you're a lot more efficient. Uh, but if you're doing a long trip, put all the battery in and get the full range. I see. And so does Tesla, does BMW, does Kia, all these companies that are coming out with electric models. I mean, I have never seen any of them, although I haven't looked for it. Do they give you the option of like, you know, you can buy the car without the battery? So currently we're focused on fleets. So if you're going through and you're deploying a fleet of vehicles, you can go in and choose that option and get it. Our strategy to get to consumers initially work with fleets in the city, get a deployment of stations across the full area, and then go to consumers. So I'd probably say it would probably be a couple of years before we start selling directly to consumers. Right, right, right. And have you talked to the kind of the big brands and kind of pitched this idea? I mean, and what is the what is the response? Because as you say, you know, battery is the most expensive part of the car. It's the kind of the biggest part of the car. It's the kind of, I would presume it's this way for all electric vehicles, but it's basically the whole floor of the car or, or most of it is, just, you know, it's the kind of the scaffolding upon which everything else is built. It feels like it's, that would be quite a big ask for them to be like, yeah, give your, start selling these with an option where you don't have a battery. You, the battery is also uh, the biggest pain. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, on, on multiple fronts, you know, if, right now, if you sell the car, every you sell it with a big battery. Not everybody needs it. You pay a lot for it. When the battery degrades, it brings down the full value of the car. The resale value yeah. is tied to the... So if you buy an electric car, the, the, the promise of electric cars, the maintenance costs will be 10% and you can use it for 20 years and without a problem. But if your battery goes bad in a few years, you just shot the value of your car. So it, it decreases it. Warranty on, on batteries are very expensive to recall and, and to go through and fix them. They, they tie it into it. And new technologies come out. So it, if you have new cells, you can't easily put them in old cars. So the big thing with swapping is it solves all those problems. That you can put newer chemistries in older cars. You, you know, a car 10 years will probably go twice as far as when you bought it right. because you have new cells in it. You can keep the car for as long as you want. And then you buy the car for a lot less because you're separating out the price of the battery. And recalls are very easy because the cars are swapping anyway. So if you need to recall batteries, the next time they swap, you take those batteries out and, and you don't put them in. So it, it solves a lot of the problem for, for the OEMs. Got you. So you said you started this company eight years ago? Yeah, eight years ago. Can we go back further? Like, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? And kind of how did you end up here? 
<laughs> uh, I mentioned my, uh, I started this with Hal and Hasuna, this is our second company together. And finding somebody you can work well with is incredible. Yeah. I've talked to many people on this pod before about like, you know, they've gone through, uh, you know, founder dating and all of these things. And it's kind of, it sounds like it's a very, you know, it's almost like a marriage. It's, it's you know, it's a very tricky thing to get right and to find. It is really tough. And you end up spending more of your week hours with your partner than you do with your, your own your spouse. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's from that perspective, I think it's a, uh, you know, it is important to get right. But it is, you know, I've gone through it. It's hard to work with friends because you don't know what they're good at or not. You know, you're good yep. friends with them. But if it's easier to become friends with people you work with. <laughs> and it's been great working together. I say both that we work well is we know what each of us is good at and not good at, and we're right. okay with that, and, and we know how to resolve conflict easily. So I think those are the key things. But by way of background, I was actually born in Ethiopia. Um, oh, so wow. Born in Ethiopia uh, with five siblings. Uh, my mother was born in Ethiopia, my father in Tanzania. My wife and I met in Dar es Salaam, believe it or not. Oh, really? Yes, yes. Oh, yeah, totally randomly <laughs> on a plane, we met uh, actually as we landed into Dar es Salaam. Yeah, so that's 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 cool. It is my father's born in uh, Dar es Salaam. Oh wow! Yeah, it's, it's a special place in my heart, David. Yes, but it's uh, it's, it's it, and and you know I love Africa. It's an incredible place, but the people are just so nice, it's so nice and so warm. So when we spent there, I actually uh, finished my high school in Dubai. We left because at the time there was a civil war going on in Ethiopia. We we left and sort of eventually found ourselves in Dubai. This is and this is. People that know of Dubai, this is not the Dubai they can imagine. Yes. This was a desert. <laughs> yes, totally. So you say your mom is from, um, were you in Addis Ababa or somewhere? Yeah, else? so I was born in Addis. Uh, my mom was actually born in Dembizolo, uh, which is a different part, but ended up uh, you know, finishing school in, in Dubai and then came over to the US for, for university. Got you, got you. And your father is from Dar es Salaam, but your last name is D'Souza. I'm so confused right now. <laughs> it, 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 it gets very complicated. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I meet these people. Actually, uh, when you speak to my children, people ask them where you're from. They go, "How much time do you have?" Yeah. <laughs> so my, my father is actually part Indian, part Portuguese, but four generations are removed from Goa and India. I see. So, I see. so they've been in Africa for a very long time. My mother is actually part Greek, part Ethiopian. Wow. <laughs> so you've got you you've got a little bit of everything. Yes, I love the twenty three and me because it just lights up the globe. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think in the family it's it's a funny one because nobody wants to marry you know, they nobody wants to marry their own so everybody marries somebody new saying it has gotta be you know, the grass is always greener on the other side. So that's a steep hill to climb for you guys. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's, it's, it's an uh, interesting one from that perspective, but it gives you a very global outlook, which yeah. people talk about it, but you really get one of those. But also think having gone through countries where they've had strife in different ways, you know, people say, well, uh, it's easy to be an entrepreneur coming from that. And I think sometimes people misconstrue that to say, mm. oh, you have nothing to lose coming from Ethiopia. I don't think it's, it's a question of nothing to lose. Is You actually know what's important to you. Whenever there's strife, yeah. you, you realize that things can come and go. You, can, you may have it and you may not have it. And you can very quickly filter it down to things that are really important. And you go in there and I do have family, I do have friends, there are things that are important, and the rest are not that important to me. So it makes it much easier to do uh, ventures and startups, using then the things that are important you won't lose, regardless of whether it goes right. well or not. Right. And also, just that willing, I mean, you're calling from Madrid, you used to live in San Francisco, and, you know, for lots of reasons left, but it just, it feels like most 
just given your background, it's a muscle you've already flexed of just like, well, I'm going to go move somewhere else because this is, will be a better, you know, quality of life or makes more sense or whatever it may be. Most people won't make that move. You said right. it, the, the inertia is very hard versus, and I think part from uh, my parents is the ability to say, let's do it. And my kids are scared to suggest things next to me because there's really a chance <laughs> you let's do it. <laughs> but I, I, I do, and I, always, uh, I remember reading this somewhere saying, in life, and it's, it's always, but especially early in life, it's important to say yes more than you say no. Yes. Because it's very easy to say no to things you don't know, you don't understand, and just say no. So I, what I do is surround yourself with people you trust, you care about, and all. And when they suggest something, say yes. And so I had a friend of mine, Jeff Stearns, he's very, really, he comes to me one day and he's talking about what you think about producing a movie. Now, I am not in the movie space at all. Right. <laughs> but in the end, you know, why not? Uh, so we ended up jumping into it, doing it, it'll be a lot of fun, you learn a lot. But you want the people around that in your life is that when you come up with something slightly crazy, you know, you spend a few seconds thinking about it and going and playing with it because you'll be surprised yeah. how many of those turn into... It may not be the initial idea, but some incarnation of that could be interesting. And if, if the people around you sort of kill it very quickly, then you have the wrong people around you. Totally. Um, so what was the movie? Uh, Blood and Money. Blood and Money. <laughs> what was it about? It's a thriller. It's, uh, it's interesting of this person who's uh, in the woods in Maine and finds a bag of money. And there's a filter of the, the money actually belongs to these criminals that spend the movie see, trying I to go see, in. I see, I see, I see. When, when, did that, when, when did that happen? When did that come out? Uh, this was two years ago. Wow. <laughs> but it, but it, I really do believe that it's, when you get the suggestion of somebody saying, let's try something, it's definitely worth sort of pursuing and playing with it. And even if you don't end up doing just the process of thinking through it, it's worth it. What was, the, what was the most surprising thing about movie production? Or the kind of the best and the worst thing about that, because it's such a. I have friends. I have friends in that vaguely in that industry, and it's just you know, it's lots of highs and lows, <laughs> and lots of extremes. <laughs> but I have to say, the, the full thing was a tremendous learning experience. But I'll say, I was saying the most surprising thing is I'm shocked how many people still watch DVDs. I, I just, I, I'm shocked. <laughs> I just could not believe the numbers. I mean, wait, you've got to be kidding me. And the full thing of how the distribution works was fascinating. Uh, to go through. So I know people keep on saying that uh, you always end up sort of losing money as you go through it and do it. It actually ended up doing really well uh, and a full uh, credit to full the team working on it because they really understood the what are the variables that you need to get right to get right. the full venture. Similar to other startups, there are a few things that matter a lot. You better focus on those. Right, right, right. So if we go back, so you, you finished high school in, uh, in Dubai and then moved to America. Yeah, and, and we did not have uh, much money at the time. So, you know, the good and the bad, the bad part is we didn't have money to pay for a university. The good is that that quickly relegated me to applying to universities that could give me full financial aid and scholarship, which means you're only applying to good universities. So it was it was a high risk. Either you get into a good place if you get it, or you're not going. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I did my undergrad, uh, mixed it part of it at UPenn and then at MIT. And it was, it was just, it was a great experience. I came into, it was the first time I actually came into the U.S. I actually came in when I was 16. So I started university when I was 16. And all I knew about the U.S. is what we learned watching Dallas. So <laughs> <laughs> did you show up with a 10 gallon hat and, and a big belt buckle? It, it was, uh, yeah, it was, that, that was quite a culture shock. I, that, it's funny because, you know, 
we probably shouldn't have been watching Dallas at that age, but uh, you know, everybody <laughs> watched it. And so I grew up watching all of Dallas and that's all I knew about the US. And it was a huge sort of, everything was surprising. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I bet, I bet. Are there any moments that, that stick out of like the culture shock of getting to America? I'd say I was I was completely thrown in. It's my roommate freshman year was an American football player. And I, I, I knew nothing about American football. Zero. I'd never even watched it. <laughs> but, you know, it went from being, I'd say, pseudo-popular at school because I did well at academics to being completely, nobody cared about me in university because I, I knew nothing about American football. <laughs> <laughs> so that was an interesting uh, culture shock where it was just fascinating to me where he got a lot of attention. You know, he'd, For he'd sure. come back with a slight injury and everybody would be there to feed him grapes or do this. And, <laughs> and, and then I was saying, hey, what about me? But look at me. I'm really smart. I'm doing good stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that, it didn't get me very far. Oh, I don't imagine. So after uni, what, what did you end up doing? And how did you, you say you started a company before. How did you get to the point where you started trying startups? Is that something from your parents or is that just the kind of immigrant story of kind of hunger to try kind of to make it here or what, what kind of, how did that all come about? You know, I, I think there too, I feel starting a company is uh, in a lot of other countries is not a huge hurdle. Yeah. And you, you see a lot of people trying businesses all the time. So I grew up in a culture where people would try it and it could be by our neighbor. She was, there was a Russian lady married to her a Bengali uh, husband and she was trying to do business and she realized there's a business importing uh, electro or exporting electronics to Russia. And right. she didn't have anything in the background, went through. And so everybody tries it. You know, you go through it and you go. So I think the point of going through and, and starting something was, was not for me. I saw people trying small things, big things yeah. every time. And my brother and I, we used to be a, a computer magazine called uh, Computer and Video Games, CNVG. Okay. But anyway, they, this is what you're in high school. They had in the middle pages, they would always give you the, the listing, the actual code for a video game. It was, it's probably like a thousand lines or two thousand lines. But right. my brother and I would actually type the full thing in, put it on cassettes and sell it to other people who didn't want to type it in. So it was, a, it was just a feeling of, wow, once you, once you type it in and debug right. all your parents, it was a feeling of what is it like to go and start a business. So right. I think that gave us a bit of it and... And then after graduating, I did my undergrad, but after it, at MIT, we had this incredible experience. MIT launched this instant messaging service called Zephyr. Uh, and within three weeks, it was the number one application at MIT. Not only that, I think most people started feeling out of MIT because they're spending all the time on instant messaging. Yeah, 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 <laughs> so yeah. I think it, it killed. But on leaving uh, university, I realized that, uh, and together with my brother and uh, a couple of friends from MIT, we realized that there was a need for instant messaging. And so that was the, the first company uh, we started and then sold that to Microsoft. Oh, wow. When was that? Uh, it's around 98. 98. Wow. So kind of the dawn of the of the web. Yeah, this was right at the start. And, and it was clear at the time, having seen it, that it was a very different experience from, from email. And everybody goes, if you have email, why do you need it? Right. But you know, at the same time, it, it also shows you that there's a difference between companies that are made on new technologies. Because there's a certain element of you need to understand what the problems are because if you ask people, they don't know they need it. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And and so this, this is a classic with instant messaging, same thing with uh, with battery swapping. But 
you can't start that sort of company saying, well, let me ask people if they think they need it. Because one, until they try it, you don't get a sense of whether you want it or not. Right. It's kind of if you build it, they will come kind of thing. Exactly. <laughs> the train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers. Airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And so how old were you when you sold that first company? About 26. And was that like, hey, now, I'm, now I've made it, I'm rich, uh, this is amazing, now what do I do with my life kind of thing? Yeah, it, it was a phenomenal outcome. What was that? What was the name of the company? Uh, it was called Flash Communications, and our uh, tagline was the speed of thought. Which you know, this is my my interpretation. I think that in the end, Bill Gates bought it because he wanted to name his book that. Uh, <laughs> 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 because sure enough, his book is now called this, which I actually still think of today is a, a phenomenal tagline: speed of thought. It is. That's actually it's it's a good tagline. And so you sell that, and then what happens? Like, what do you do with your life? <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny. I think I think there is a big focus in, in, in many places on on doing it for money and all that. And I can tell startups are the worst thing to do for money because the probability of it succeeding is so low. <laughs> so it's funny. You get all these people. At, at, the number one reason they do it is oh, it's a great way. And look, there's so many easier ways to make money. Than doing a startup, so you better really enjoy it because that might be all you're going to get from a startup. Yeah. <laughs> so the, uh, you know, if it works out, that's great, but that's not what what happens uh, to most. So it went from there. I did another startup after that called DSoft, which was doing online uh, trading systems. Yeah. And that got acquired by a Bank of America at the time and got rolled into Merrill Lynch, uh, and it's their online trading platform. I see. And from there, I actually went to Goldman Sachs doing private equity. So I actually wanted to see the other side of it. So I'd done right. startup and you, and it is like everything else. The first time you do a startup, you, you make every mistake in the book. You know, yeah. you go through it, slowly get better at it, and it definitely gets easier as you go through it. Uh, but I ended up going from there to to Goldman Sachs on the uh, on the private equity side to actually invest in companies in the private equity group out there, and it was a phenomenal experience. Mm. You, get, you get a chance to see it from the investor perspective. Which, when you're an entrepreneur, it's, it's often hard to understand. Yeah. When you were doing that job, was there like a thing that was like all of a sudden obvious to you as a founder of like, you know, maybe you're frustrated because you 
were having trouble raising a fund or your investors were acting a certain way or just like, was there, you know, that dynamic, was there something that crystallized of like, oh, that's why this was so hard or that's why this happened? <laughs> there the, 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 the were. And it's just a simple one. And, you know, this may not be true for most investors, but I realize why most investors won't tell you the truth about why they turn you down. Why? Why is that? <laughs> You know, they all have a set of, uh, you know, kind of like your your stock excuses. Exactly, and, and you know, and I'll say when we tried to raise money right at the start for uh, Ample, we got turned down by probably over two hundred investors. So yeah. we, we at a certain point we joke and try and guess into it which stock excuse they use to turn us down. But you know, so you'd always hear, oh, it doesn't fit our fund focus. Where you know we need to raise a new fund and. You reason then it's like everything else that in the end it's a it's a pretty small startup world and as an investor even if you turn them down this round you may want to be there for the next round mm. so nobody's going to actually tell you what they think and I think the dangerous and when we started the first company you actually believe them and you try and modify your pitch to address the, what you've been told until it took me later on to say wait they may not be telling you the truth <laughs> and and so that that was a one of those aha moments you go wow. I, Maybe I was just being naive. I didn't realize it. But I realized it that they want to make sure they turn you down so that you stay still have a good relationship with them. Right. So that if you end up being doing okay, they might come into it later on. Well, it sounds like it's a little bit like you know if you're like breaking up with somebody and you don't want to be mean, so you make up some <laughs> some reason, and then they're like, "Well, I can fix that. I can change." And you're like, "No, no, no, don't change. Just no, no, please I just, don't. <laughs> I'm just not that into you. I just don't want to say that." <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 me, not you. It's me. It's me. <laughs> you're, you're exactly right. The only thing with the VCs is they, they may want to come around. It's just relationships that they usually are. <laughs> but, but I, I, you're right though. I did go through a bunch of those where I, I sat there and that thing will the full idea of uh, getting references gave me a, a completely different perspective. I found out that entrepreneurs, if you ask another entrepreneur the reference. They're usually very honest, um, mm -hmm. and I think there's this core of, you know, trust between entrepreneurs. I think I'll call them. I'll always tell them. I think I cannot imagine myself not lying yeah. to another entrepreneur. They know, they know how hard they're working for what they do. So that was an interesting one. Versus, I find those may not be true uh, in other cases. <laughs> and I've seen, I've seen people give you a reference on. Or a company that said Fulton Ulterior Motors. So I think a lot of that I did my first company was very young and so a lot of those dynamics are like, a lot more naive and trusting initially until you go through it and sort of understand some of the dynamics and why people are doing you know, what they're doing. Right. So you did that for a while and then I presume you jumped back into the startup world at some point? Exactly. I went back in and that's with my, uh, with my current uh, co-founder, Harlan. We started a company in the health space and we went through and we started a, a company that was to go through and give people the tools to monitor and manage their own health. We realized at the time that at a micro perspective, what was happening in the healthcare industry is that uh, people were living longer, had more uh, health issues. They needed more healthcare. Yeah. The healthcare system had a shortage of doctors. They were unable to go through and deliver it. And whatever uh, help you got costs you way too much. And that was a vicious cycle that we said, until you can get people to get more involved in their own health, this is going to break. So we, we created a, a platform to allow people to go and connect with others, collect health data, view the data based on the condition they have. And then you know, we ended up with over 20 million people actively using the platform. And then that got acquired by Merck Pharmaceuticals. 
Wow. Okay. So you've started and sold three companies at this point. Yep. And does that bring you to Ample? Yes. <laughs> and so it was messaging, finance, medicine, and now electric cars. Why'd you go there? And I, I will be honest. How then I think then we wanted to work together. <laughs> Just for the sake, we enjoyed working together. Definitely wanted to start another company. We looked at a few different things. But this full energy transition was just, whenever you see a massive change in a big industry, there's a lot of opportunity. Yeah. And so we said, if you're trying to move one third of human energy consumption from one form to the other, there's going to be a lot of opportunity out there. Yeah. So yeah, we looked yeah. at different things and very quickly we, we realized that the part that was broken and nobody was working on was charging. Right. And so we said, if there's a way to solve that problem, there's a huge opportunity. And then we literally sort of had to go and, and spend the first years solving a lot of the technical problems to to create a solution that could work across different cars and, and allow a car to work with any battery and put new batteries. There are a lot of technical challenges out there. So we spent the first years solving that. Once we solved it and realized it was technically uh, possible, at that point, we went down and, and raised the first round of funding. So obviously, you've done really well in terms of the previous companies you've sold, but the tech you're trying to solve is not easy or cheap and it involves hardware, which is expensive. So were you basically just doing that on your own? Because I'm looking at, I was looking at your, the kind of the video on the website before of like what Ample looks like. And it kind of looks like a garage you drive in and then like they kind of come up from underneath, take out the battery and then put a new one in. That's basically how it works, correct? Exactly. But did you basically figure that out and make a prototype on your own before you went and raised money? Or was it just like, okay, this is generally the idea. This is how it's going to work. These are why the economics work, et cetera. No, so we, we funded it for the first few years on our own. Uh, I'd say we, we raised the round of funding. We had a working prototype. It solved all the problems. Uh, so there was a few years into it, three or four years into it. And it was a combination. One is, you know, we had to do a certain amount of that work to get there. The other part was what I was talking to you in that we got turned down a lot. <laughs> yeah. I think one thing that uh, you hear a lot of VCs that talk about investing in cutting technologies or, yeah. you know, deep tech. Very few of them do deep tech. You know, deep yeah. tech is a new version of Uber. Yep, 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 yep. So I, I, it was it was surprising because we, you know, we'd read the pitches that they had and assume that this would be a perfect fit. Uh, in fact, one VC from a deep tech VC actually came and told us, look, I love you guys. I'll give you $20 million, but why don't you just do anything in software? It doesn't matter to me what you do. You know, you <laughs> AI stuff. <laughs> well, because software is easy, right? Because you build, you write the code and the, you know, the incremental cost of the co next customer is effectively zero and it scales really easily. And it's not, it's bytes, not atoms. The Silicon Valley likes likes bytes, not atoms. And I, in the end, I have to say, and I'll give a lot of credit to uh, a couple of the investors in the first round, both Shell Ventures and More Capital. I really said there are a lot of VCs that spend a lot of time thinking about the hundred reasons why the company could fail. And there are probably a thousand reasons the company could fail. But the ones that actually invest are the ones that look, what if things go right? right. And I think that's the mindset that was different. And they spend a lot of time saying, that if this works, this would change, you know, change a full industry, right. and they got uh, very interested. And and I'd also say we, we did we did try most VCs funds out there. They hard fund ones we didn't try, but we actually got investment from uh, Amy Gu. And as I mentioned Herbie's, it was the only uh, VC. It was Hemi Ventures that we actually sent an email to 
a cold email and actually led to an investment. Oh, really? <laughs> because I actually think most VCs probably don't even monitor that email. Yeah, <laughs> probably yeah, goes totally. straight to spam. Uh, so I actually mentioned AV because that was the it's the only one in my entire experience where you send a cold email actually resulted in, in, in an right. And so your first investors were Shell and More Capital, More Capital, the hedge fund? Correct. They, they have a, a venture arm. Um, and so it's came from the venture arm. Got you. And so you built a prototype. Was it like basically a kind of uh, a retrofitted Jiffy Lube in San Francisco? <laughs> <laughs> you know, anybody who's gone through it and done the full thing with, uh, with demos and uh, startups, I think would really really understand the, uh, you know, how how finicky those things could be. So, you know, the first one we were using to create a prototype and it happened to be that we couldn't do our demos between, I think, two and three in the afternoon. And that's because the light would come in through this, uh, <laughs> uh, through a skylight and to wreak havoc on our senses. <laughs> right, 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 right. So, right, right. so you go through, but you know, we, 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 our initial one was a garage. It was actually a former taco factory. It was actually perfect for us because you bring vehicles in. It was built in and out, got the first uh, prototypes up and running. We were able to go and demonstrate it working. And it was very impressive because you take literally, we took our, on our first vehicle uh, radio control batteries and we could get a car to work on it. Because the full idea of separating the car from the chemistry is a part of our mm. key patent and the key technology we went through and solved. So it was a very impressive that you literally put any cars in any battery or any batteries in any car and get it to work. So wow. the demo and then we had the full swapping going as well. So when did you actually bring in that first round of cash? I think it was around, yeah, I may get it wrong, but around 2017 or 18. Got you. And so now the challenge, right, is to kind of scale it up and, and I presume bring along the OEMs to go back where we started of getting them to buy into this idea of like, you know, basically sell cars with no batteries or swappable batteries, which even on fleets, that feels like a, a big ask. But maybe the problem you are solving is, is so the solution is effective enough for them to kind of agree. I think this is exactly it. Is in the end... Uh it's the fleets that end up persuading the OEMs. Right. Because if, if it's hard to find fleets that have deployed electric at scale and got it to work. They run into too many issues with the charging infrastructure. They don't have the power. It costs them too much time. It takes long to deploy it. Or the operational complexity is too high. So the I think for us, the biggest salespeople are the fleets because they understand the need. They want it. And when they go to an OEM and they say, we're interested in buying a few thousand vehicles, but we want it to be swappable. The OEMs, you know, are interested in working with them, saying how we go through. So that I think has happened. What that has happened has really helped us is two things. One is China has sort of made a massive pivot to swapping. Oh, really? Yeah. So they realize, and eighty-two percent of the world's fast chargers are in China. So they have the largest, you know, fast charging infrastructure in the world. And I think they realize that this is not going to scale. They're not going to move uh, this. Right. And so right now, almost every OEM in China has a swapping solution that goes to massive fleets uh, in China that are going through and using swapping as the primary means. And so I think people can look there and see here's a good demonstration of it working at scale. And I say outside of China, you also have other countries like India going through and saying they want to do swapping. Uh, so other countries are going through. But also people have seen that it worked really well with two and three wheelers. So, you know, if you look at electric uh, motorbikes, yeah. uh, swapping works incredibly well. Uh, oh, it's, I bet. It's, right. So I think people have seen 
the successes had in those and saying it's a natural way to go through and do it. How do we expand it to other, other uh, forms? I understand from from my perspective as a user, if I can go in and 10 minutes later, go you go from like, you know, 10 miles left of my battery to 300 miles. That makes total sense. But you still would need, I presume, a massive charging infrastructure to charge up all the replacement batteries all the time, no? You know, that's what the problem with charging is, suppose you have a 100 kilowatt connection into a charger. Yep. Then you're only using it when somebody's plugged in. The rest of the time, it's doing absolutely nothing. So if you move to swapping, it's continuously charging batteries 24-7. Right, 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 yeah. right. And so, so that's what, the second thing is, speaking of, well, what happens if you have high utilization on a charger? The problem with a charger is that once you get to high utilization, the wait time becomes untenable, even at around 30%. If you have 30% utilization on a charger, you could be waiting... 30 to 40 minutes before you start charging. Mm. So you, you can't get to high utilization on a charger unless it's fully programmatic and you know exactly when you start, when you stop. So in the end, I think 30% is, is very generous. Usually chargers end up with like 20% utilization. And so 80% of the time is doing nothing. That 80% at a swapping station is charging batteries, which means you can swap them off on cars. Right. In terms of that, um, where have you got, because I know you guys have raised just, you've raised a bunch of money in the last nine months. I think it's, now you've raised something like $260 million total. Is that right? Correct. Where have you got to in terms of adoption, getting OEMs signed up, getting partners? Just give, if you could give a sense of kind of the progress you're making there, because as you say, it's a huge transition and there's a lot of heavy lifting involved. How, How far have you got? We are commercial in, in the in the Bay Area. So if you take uh, Uber vehicles there, there's a chance you may be in a swappable vehicle out there. So we do have right now, we have uh, about 10 stations deployed across where this, the drivers can go in and swap. We're going to be dropping a uh, sort of deploying in Europe later this year as well. And then after that, we'll actually be deploying in, in Japan as well. So I think from a deployment perspective, we've gone through the deployment process for a single station is pretty quick. We can get it done in a couple of weeks. Right. There's no construction involved, uh, which makes it very easy. From an OEM perspective, we have five OEM uh, partners that we work with. We still have NDAs with them and can't go and mention them. We will start mentioning them very soon. But they're some of the largest OEMs in the world. Right. So I think from that perspective, they have realized that in order to go through and uh, sell vehicles, you, I'd say there's one part that works really well right now is where people buy a vehicle, they have a garage, and they probably have a second car that's gas as well. Yep. If you have that, it works. But if you have a single vehicle and if you don't have a garage, it, it starts falling apart very quickly. Yep. And then for fleets, it's really tough. You know, they, as soon as you go to more than 20 cars, it falls. So so for us, that's what the OEMs are, are looking at and saying, if, if you look at the projections where these countries want to go in terms of number of vehicles by 2030, they need a better solution for the infrastructure. And that's where swapping fits really nicely. And is that from where you sit, is that the kind of general realization? And I ask because we're at this really interesting moment where, you know, you've had GM, VW, Ford, all these companies say, we're going full electric, right? Like the internal combustion engine is going to be dead within 10, 15 years. This shift is happening and it's happening pretty quickly. And you have a ton of new makes and models coming out over the next 18 months especially in america as you know like there's a whole bunch of pickup trucks and if you electrify pickup trucks you electrify america so that's all really interesting but is there this realization broadly that 
to make this work at that level, you need swapping? Or is it just you need a ton of fast chargers because that's, you know, Tesla obviously has built a huge supercharger network. Rivian is trying to build its own, et cetera. Um, you have companies that are setting up their charging infrastructure, but it's just, what is your sense of kind of inside the industry as we look forward in the next five, seven, eight, ten years, what that looks like? So I think the realization is definitely sudden because initially many car companies said most people will charge at home. Yeah. You realize that most people cannot charge at home. Uh, you know, that, that doesn't work for majority of people. They park on the street, they're in condo buildings without. So majority, probably 70% plus cannot charge at home. So, you, you know, what, how do you go through and solve it? The full idea of building lots of fast chargers is just not a, a scalable solution. Fast chargers work well as a supplemental charging system. Yeah. Where you need, a, a, you know, 5% of your miles now and then on a highway, you can use it. If you need to get 100% of your miles, fast charging doesn't work at all. No. It's, it's too expensive, takes long to try and build them in cities. Very few f- cities are even contemplating putting them uh, within it. And it, it takes too long. It's okay when it's supplemental, but if every time you... You need to charge it. You have to go and spend 45 minutes. It's going to break down very quickly. So, so I think that realization has come in is that, that one is people going to charge at home is a myth. Second is the infrastructure will take care of itself. It's not happening. Yeah. <laughs> and also in the end, we're doing this to go green. And in order to go green, having people lease cars for three years, fast charge it for three years and then get rid of the car, it's much worse than going to gas. If you, if you got a gas car and kept it for 15 years, it'd be much better than doing that. So in order to achieve the convenience that people need, the, the green outcomes that they want, and actually come up with something that can be deployed fast and scaled, uh, they all starting to look at alternative solutions to charging. And on that green point, are you guys doing any deals with kind of renewable generators or kind of working around ensuring that because the cynics will say, well, basically you've just swapped out a petrol car for a coal-powered car, um, you know, because that's where so much of the electricity comes from. But what does that kind of look like for you guys? We are in, in different ways in different cities. Uh, some cities, you know, at time of the day, you get more renewable and you yeah. you can optimize it to charge it. Then in some cities, you can go through and sign contracts for renewable. But in places where you can actually connect to renewable, because our batteries in the swap stations act like buffers or storage to the, the grids, it's a great place to store renewable energy. So we, our swapping stations end up being the solution of how do you marry renewable energy, which is predict, unpredictable supply, with electric cars, which is unpredictable demand. So you, then to connect those, you need a buffer, which is batteries, and we are natural buffering mechanisms to connect those two. Got you. So in your vision of the future, there will be, in the you know, you're starting with fleets, obviously, but you think the ultimate picture will be that a lot of the big brands that we all know, big car brands will offer this as an option of, you know, swappable batteries, especially as we get deeper into this transition. Exactly. I, I think you'll see a lot, I just exactly as you've seen it happen in China, that a lot of people start going through removing that model. And I think from a personal perspective, would you pay a lot more, 30, 40% more to a vehicle to own the battery, knowing that that battery is going to go bad and it's going to be very hard to, to change? So things would be a natural one where people would realize that I would rather pay significantly less for this vehicle and have also the potential to keep the car for longer, but also put in newer technologies, uh, newer chemistries so my car can go further. So I think it'll be a natural one. There'll continue to be a few people that want to own it, and that makes sense if you want to charge it at home. But 
for everybody else in the swapping would be a great alternative. Got you. And then um, just just finally, uh, do you have any of your kind of stations in London or Britain? Not yet. So that's high on our list to get out there. Uh, I think London has done a great job in terms of incentivizing. Although I heard recently that they may have just cancelled incentives, but they've done a good job. And when you go there, you see a lot of uh, electric vehicles deployed out there. So I, I think it'll be it's it's a place we'd love to go and we look starting to do the work there. They don't have the grid to support fast charges in the city, uh, so swapping would be a natural way for them to to go through and do it. Even though you can't get a lot of real estate, there's a lot of parking. And for us, if you have two parking spaces between deploy station, so we can actually find the city within where you know places within the city to go through and deploy it. Got you. So it's two parking spaces. If everything is working fabulously, how many cars can be charged, quote unquote? in a day or I don't know, in a 12 hours or something relative to say a, a supercharger or one of these other spots? You know, if you have, uh, if you have enough power coming in, you can do 10 to 12,000 hour. Uh, so you can go through a lot, you can easily do over a hundred cars uh, in 12 hours. Right. Uh, if you look at superchargers, depending on how long you, you want people to wait, realistically, most superchargers have you know, under 20% utilization of fast chargers in general. So if you look at a 10 hour period, You'll be lucky for two hours that they're going through and charging. At over two hours, maybe they've gone through and charged four cars. Right. So it's a huge difference in between charging four, you know, or using that and charging 100. Right, 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 right. Um, and then just lastly, on you, you have a deal with Uber, is that right? Yeah, so Uber's a, 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 a been a great partner. We've been working them for a while. You know, they have a commitment to, to go through and convert their fleet to electric. And so it's been a natural use case. You have a high utilization use case where people are, are driving a large number of miles. This is their livelihood. So yeah, these yeah. are not people who spend 12 to 14 hours a week at a charger. So it is a direct impact on the amount of money uh, they earn. Uh, and if you convert it, it also has a huge green benefit because these are lots of miles being driven. So right. I think it's helping them in that conversion to electric sort of benefits a lot of people. Right, right. Well, it sounds like you have your work cut out, but it's also very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It, 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 it has been, it's great to be in the space right now. When we started, you know, a lot of people were looking at electric and saying, Andrew, what's going to happen? You know, yeah. they're very skeptical. It's, it's the stage right now is it's happening. We just need to solve the problem. So it's, it's really exciting to be in the space right now. Yeah. Well, I will leave you to your Friday in Madrid. I hope you go have some jamón serrano and <laughs> some fabulous Rioja and enjoy the sun. Thank you very much. It's great to be chat with you. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank John for taking the time all the way calling in from lovely Madrid. I want to thank you all for listening, for rating, for reviewing, for sharing the word, spreading the word, sharing the word. You, you know what I mean. Thank you again for yeah for listening. Um, I'll be writing about... I might be writing about more crypto stuff this weekend. It's just kind of the story, the big, big story that's kind of taking up a lot of my time at the moment. So do check that out in thetimes.co.uk. Pick up the paper. Follow me on Twitter at Danny Fortson. Email me at danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. And that is it for me this week. Have a fabulous, fabulous weekend, and we'll talk to you very soon. Bye-bye. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on, settings. 
so you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.